A quick announcement before we start. We've got a live show coming up on Wednesday, April 22nd. That's Earth Day. It's just a few days from now. And instead of uh, going to a venue, being in front of people, we can't do that, of course, we're going to be with you from our homes. Hopefully you'll be at home, too. You can come join us. We'll pull back the curtain on our home recording setup, and we'll be talking about all the news happening, both coronavirus-related and non-coronavirus-related. It's a crossover episode between the Energy Gang and the Interchange, and it's free. You can sign up today by hitting that link right there at the top of the show notes. We hope you'll join us. And a big thanks to our sponsors. We're brought to you by Viking Cold Solutions. Viking Cold has a thermal energy storage system that stores and discharges up to 1 megawatt for up to 13 hours per day per facility. Storing cold inside critical food supply infrastructure also provides three times longer resiliency during planned or unplanned power outages. You can see the benefits for the grid, the food industry, and the environment at vikingcold.com grid. We're also brought to you by NextTracker, the world's leading solar tracking solutions company. NextTracker works with customers to advance the connected solar power plant of the future with smart trackers, energy storage systems, and advanced control software. Find out more at nexttracker.com. That's nextracker.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. I'm a contributing editor at Green Tech Media. You know, we're all adjusting to the new normal around here, coming to terms with what is going to likely be a tough situation for a long time. This virus won't just go away without some kind of major medical breakthrough, which means we'll be managing it for a year, maybe two years, and that means more economic fits and starts, more economic disruption. The longer this goes on, the more dramatically it will alter how we make things, where we make them, what kind of companies grow or fail, and who suffers and who benefits. So what will be the new normal in the energy economy when this virus starts to dissipate? This week, Shale and I will speak with Amy Myers Jaffe, a senior fellow and director of the Energy and Climate Change Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Shale and I are periodically calling people up and getting their takes on what they're thinking about, what they're writing about in this moment. And Amy recently penned a great piece on whether we're going to come out of this situation with a lasting impact on carbon emissions. Her work focuses on oil markets, geopolitics, and the emerging clean energy sectors. So we hopped on a call to touch on many of the themes she's been writing about, including behavioral changes, the stimulus, and the future of oil. We started this conversation off by thinking about the parallels to the Great Recession more than a decade ago. Well, the first thing we saw after the crisis is we saw a tremendous amount of private equity and institutional investor money go into the energy space. Uh, most of it went into um, oil and gas, you know, shale drilling, a big speculative bubble um, in different parts of uh, the shale complex. Um, but more recently, we've seen some of that money pivot to clean energy. Um, and the irony is, uh, or maybe it's not an irony, but the returns to capital for investments in clean energy have been running between 7 and 10%, whereas some of the investment that went into the shale is, has been a, a doggone loser. Um, so I think that when we come out of this crisis, you know, institutional investors are going to remember that. Um, and that might be good for the climate. Shale, what do you think are the most important big picture changes coming out of that previous crisis? 
You know, I mean, obviously the most important one from a clean energy perspective is the stimulus and the resulting programs that came out of that and the investment that came out of that. Um, absent that, I mean, you can imagine a counterfactual where we hadn't had, or either we had a stimulus program that didn't include all that spending and tax credits and section 1603, which lets you take a cash grant in lieu of a tax credit for a while, all that stuff. If you had removed that stuff from the equation, but kept the financial crisis, uh, I think we'd be in a very different place in terms of electricity today, for sure. So that was probably the biggest, most important one. I mean, the other thing that I think was was an important knock-on effect of what Amy was saying, which is, is going to be relevant again this time, I think, is that so we have this we have low interest rates, you know, cheap money, investment into the shale complex, which, you know, creates this boom in natural gas, which means gas prices are really low. And gas prices increasingly are the driving factor in the cost of wholesale electricity. It's shifting now to renewables depending on the location. Like Texas can be driven by wind prices or whatever. But historically, at least during that time period, natural gas prices were the the predominant factor in a lot of the country. And anybody's individual electricity bill is a combination of the cost of generation, the cost of T&D. And so what's happened over that 12 years or so is that generation costs have remained really, really low and in fact went down for a portion of that time, which allowed transmission and distribution costs to go up, which they have during that whole time, but keep people's electricity bills or at least keep their per kilowatt hour rate pretty flat. So we, the consumer, have not seen a big increase, relatively speaking, in electricity costs, despite the fact that T&D costs have gone up because generation costs have been so low. Um, and that's kind of hidden from us, the customer, but that's been a big impact of what Amy was saying on electricity. I'm always interested in these third order impacts as well. So if we consider what cheap debt did to fuel the shale boom, which then dropped wholesale electricity prices and then challenged nuclear plants across the country. We're now at a moment where uh, we either need political action to step in and save these nuclear plants, or many of them are just not going to make it. And so, uh, you know, these plants have been challenged for years now economically. And that's our biggest source of carbon-free electricity right now. And and so we're still kind of seeing these third-order impacts in the electricity market. And it's a big question for decarbonizing America. What happens to these uh, nuclear power plants? And and you could draw this through line to uh, what happened with you know the early frenzy in natural gas. So I think one of the big problems we're going to see in the energy markets going forward is investors have lost money in almost every part of the complex. And, you know, I, my concern is as people make philosophical or economic decisions, some of them might be philosophical and some of them might be economic about how to structure the risk of their going forward investments, um, that we're actually going to see an underinvestment um, in energy in general. And then uh, in specific, as you mentioned, you know, some facilities are going to flag. You're going to have some nuclear closures. We're, we're retiring coal. Um, we're going to have because of the oil price crisis now, we're going to have less drilling in oil. And, you know, what happens um, if we do, you know, like in the 1920s, have a roaring boom after we get out of this pandemic? You know, how are we going to fuel that? Do you think that that underinvestment would be true broadly across the board? I mean, the counterargument that folks in the renewable energy industry would make is that they haven't. That has not lost money by and large, in part because those renewable energy projects have long-term fixed price offtake contracts. So there's not a whole lot of merchant 
renewables yet, and so they haven't been exposed to these swings in the market in the same way that that the thermal generation world has. So do you think that this results potentially in underinvestment overall, or do you think that it just accelerates the shift of dollars into stuff that seems safer? Well, I mean, it could shift the dollars. I mean, we've been seeing, you know, in the last, you know, just prior to the pandemic, you were seeing a shift last year or two into renewables. Um, And that was, you know, sort of a global shift. And as we look at, you know, the next round of stimulus, um, you know, today, uh, the head of the EU uh, redoubled down on the fact that their stimulus package is going to focus on clean energy. The Chinese announced a week or two ago that their subsidies for electric cars are going to continue for the next two years. Um, so I do think that governments are going to make purposeful uh, decisions on stimulus uh, to promote clean energy. And that leaves the question of the United States. I mean, we have such a broken system for how we do things. And, um, and we could fall behind. Okay, so a lot to discuss there. I I think we should just go to the stimulus right now because it's a topic that we are covering extensively and thinking through. There are obviously not a lot of details, but certainly we're going to get a couple more major packages. Uh, International officials, you know, Fatih Birol at the IEA is talking about the need to promote green stimulus packages. We've certainly seen indications uh, throughout the world that, There are going to be countries that lead with carbon-free investments. Who knows what will happen here in the U.S.? But as we saw in the aftermath, I mean, the stimulus package was really influential. We've just discussed a few um, important developments. If you think about Tesla, um, you know, Tesla was on the verge of bankruptcy before getting a loan guarantee. And now I think still it has a bigger market capitalization than uh, General Motors uh, and Ford and Fiat Chrysler combined. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but up until very, up until you know February, and it's, a, it's an extraordinarily influential company that uh, is changing transportation and the future of storage, and probably or likely wouldn't exist without the help through the stimulus package. And so here we are at another moment where we have an opportunity to create these new chances for companies in this emerging sector of our economy. And it's uncertain how much attention the U.S. is going to devote to this, but we know it will have an extraordinary impact. Uh, So, Amy, what do you think the chances are that we will get something meaningful and influential in upcoming stimulus packages? And what do you think that might be? You know, I'm actually a little pessimistic about the stimulus being uh, distributed in a sensible way. Um, in terms of forward-looking way, right? You know, the problem is, you know, when you're in a crisis, there's a tendency to think about how to save the jobs that we have today, as opposed to how to retrain or retool people for the jobs that are going to make us competitive tomorrow. And, you know, I understand, I mean, people are suffering. And so therefore, the sort of desire to get people back to the jobs they already know um, is going to be really politically compelling. And I think that's going to make it really challenging to get a stimulus that is the kind we need, which is really focused on the future economy. Okay, so is there a positive scenario that you see? You know, energy infrastructure and climate strategy and everything like that green economy has really been handled on a state-by-state basis. So I, I really think that 
a one-size-fit-all national policy is not actually the way to go when it comes to stimulus for the future economy. I, I think there has to be regional solutions. And I, I've, uh, like, I've, when I've heard Jennifer Granholm, uh, former governor of Michigan, talk about her ideas for the Rust Belt and how to convert the sort of skills that people have into the skills that are similar, that would be for the future economy. I mean, those are ideas that I think need to be brought to the fore before we start spending and allocating the money. Well, I mean, I totally agree that states, um, first of all, we don't have much that's regional. We have Reggie, we have a like a kind of a weak regional carbon trading initiative in the Northeast. But we do have a lot of state level stuff, right? States issue their own renewable portfolio standards and all sorts of other things like that. I think we'll continue to and should. But to me, I don't know how that negates the role of the federal government in this stuff. So, you know, out of the 2008 stimulus, for example, came, um, you know, extension of tax credits, cash grants in lieu of tax credits, which was huge and will be an issue again this time because so much renewable investment is dependent on tax equity. And when you don't have um, taxes that large corporations pay, that basically evaporates. It gave us uh, a ton of spending on smart grid, right? We have over 50% penetration of smart meters now in the United States, which it's amazing we don't have 100%. But nonetheless, the reason that we have as much as we have is because of that. So can we talk about the long-term implications for the oil and gas markets? Um, oil prices are down by you know 55% this year. We recently saw uh, some kind of resolution with OPEC to slash uh, oil production, which could moderate prices. So it feels like maybe we've hit the bottom during this crisis, but... Certainly, uh, you know, U.S. producers are going through an extraordinary crisis and, uh, you know, the banks funding them are wondering what to do. And so what is going to happen to the U.S. oil and gas industry and what are some of the potential long term impacts to the market? Well, we're definitely going to see. Well, you know, it's even hard to know if we're going to see consolidation because who's going to have money on the other side of this to buy out the other companies? Um, You know, one of the things that's already been reported in the press is that the banks might actually take the oil and gas assets uh, as as instead of just selling them a penny on the dollar um, through a bankruptcy court, they might just take over um, these assets, create a, a, some kind of a arm's length, you know, holding company or, or ownership structure, um, and and then and then have the wherewithal to be able to pr- produce or hold those reserves until they could be have a better economic life. Um, and you can imagine the banks doing that, and then you could imagine the U.S. government having to, you know, help them do that. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe that's, like, going to be the way a bailout would be structured, um, or we would try to preserve our ability to have industry. But I, I don't think we're out of the woods on oil, because I just can't imagine when people are going to get in a plane again. So it'll be interesting to watch in China. Um, so, uh, and then the other thing that people don't actually think through about oil is there's a tremendous amount of oil, 8 million barrels a day, um, that's used solely for freight if, in marine. So if, you, if we're going to have less trade because we're going to get more nationalistic about where we produce goods and we're not going to have component parts all around the world and we're going to have an acceleration of 3D printing, which makes it easier to make things at home and, and not have to make them all around the world. 
Um, if we have less trucking, less shipping, um, that's going to make another bl permanent blow uh, to oil demand. And so it's not clear, you know, how uh, healthy the industry is going to be going forward. And, and, and I think it's kind of like a race against time. You know, how many oil producing countries, you know, go under um, that are fragile states and their oil production comes off for either geopolitical or technical reasons like we've seen in Venezuela um, and how many places don't. And, you know, when, you know, when we get to the Humpty Dumpty part, uh, or in the Humpty Dumpty part in the oil industry, when we get to the sort of, oh, let's pick these pieces up and paste them back together because uh, we need the oil again, uh, it's not clear how that's going to play out. Yeah, I do think it will be interesting to see whether uh, this pandemic results in a, a change in transportation behavior. I will say I'm a little worried about the early indicators that we have on this, which is out of China, where you know new auto sales plummeted, as you would expect, while they were under lockdown, but then since then have come roaring back. And there's speculation that it's because people are worried about public transit um, because of infection. And so we're going to be more focused on single passenger vehicles, which seems like the opposite of an outcome that we would actually want here. So for me, that it's really hard to tell which direction this goes from a behavioral perspective. And it's so hard to say because after the financial crisis of 2007 and the Great Recession, we saw vehicle miles travel dip. Everyone was talking about peak car. And then it shot right back up again, and we bought more trucks and light-duty, you know, SUVs and light-duty trucks than ever before. But, you know, the car industry is still talking about peak car, um, and some of that's coming from ride-sharing. And so the question is, really, in terms of safety, um, I, I agree, you know, it's going to be hard to convince people to go back in public transportation um, for some period of time, uh, or maybe, I don't know, maybe we go to a different system. But, you know, policy matters. And if there are incentives for companies to have uh, remote working days and non-remote working days, you know, you could imagine a city staggering. Um, you know, company A, B, and C uh, uh, have their workers come to the office on Monday, Wednesdays, and company EFG have their workers come to the office on Tuesday, Thursdays. Um, you know, you could just sort of imagine... Um, more of a, a different way of thinking about how to organize society, you know, in societies that care about climate change. So let's think about what brings us the most optimism as we get through this and what brings us the most pessimism. Shale, what, what to you brings the most optimism as you look beyond the current moment? Um, this is a challenging situation globally in every sector, including the energy sector. Optimism comes, I guess, out of the one, out of the possibility of, uh, you know, policy reaction that could go in the right direction and could support the transition that we've been talking about. The second being the possibility, as Amy mentioned, of long-term behavioral change that also accelerates the transition. Um, you know, both of those seem somewhat uncertain to me, but I can paint a picture where both uh, occur and that would be pretty positive. But, but absent either of those things, it's hard to picture what's happening right now as a net positive in really any way. You know, things like 3D printing, remote working, um, you know, video, th these things are going to bring huge changes. The innovation, you know, that I think could come out of this where you've got bunches of people 
who realize that there's some technological solution, you know, you've got, uh, and it's coming across the board. You know, people like to think of it as, you know, with Silicon Valley. But, you know, Baker Hughes, which is a service company in drilling, you know, which you would think, oh, God, they're going to go out of business. You know, you know what I mean? They have 3D printers that they use to make drilling equipment, and they have completely retooled that to make medical supplies for the Houston Medical Center. Like now's the time to think about how to take human capital, especially here in the United States, and utilize it for a better future. And some of that means, you know, a lot of what we do doesn't have to be done in a car, can be done over the internet. Uh, but some of that means we're going to be able to manufacture in different ways. We're going to behave in different ways. Um, that's really going to change the way we do things. Again, that was Amy Myers Jaffe, a senior fellow and director of the Energy and Climate Change Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. So just a reminder, before we finish up here, we've got that live show on Wednesday. You can sign up in the show notes. It is going to be like an hour and a half conversation. We're going to be taking questions from the audience. We hope to see you there. Uh, In the meantime, if you want to suggest other show topics or things to talk about in the live show, uh, hit us up on Interchange Show. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, Shale's on Twitter. We like to check our mentions and see what people are suggesting. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Shale Khan is my co-host. We are a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. And we hope to catch you on Wednesday, the 22nd, during our live show. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.